Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, and more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on this podcast. And in this episode, I'm very happy to be talking with David Chapman. David Chapman is a writer, computer scientist, engineer, and Buddhist practitioner. He's been practicing Vajrayana Buddhism in the Aro Ter tradition for about 20 years. David is also a leading proponent of meta-rationality, a subject we'll go into in some depth during this episode. And he writes about it on his website, meaningness.com. So without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Pattern and Nebulosity. David, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to have you in the studio. We've been working on making this happen for a few months now, so here we are. That's great. Yes. Good to be here. It's good to be here. I agree. It was funny, the other night we went to a, what would you call it, a post-rationalist gathering? Maybe I would say meta-rationalist, yes. A a meta-rationalist gathering at a uh, tavern in Noe Valley in San Francisco. And there was quite a number of people there who came to ask David questions and see what he had to say about meta-rationality. And just for listeners who are not familiar with that concept, we could say that other names for meta-rationality include post-rationality, Keganism, or as David likes to call it, meaningness. As I understand it, meta-rationality arises when we realize that there's no map that can describe the totality of reality. No single map that could possibly describe the totality of reality. And therefore, it can be useful to employ a wide variety of maps to help you get a closer approximation of reality. Would you say that's fairly accurate so far? Yes. Yeah. And in my experience, my own experience and the experience of my friends, we've seen that a lot of people start taking steps in the direction of meta-rationality after they spend a number of years deeply engaged in a single map, in a single model of reality. They get really into it and start working through all its understanding of the world and end up noticing that there's places that the map can't describe or doesn't describe well or even just doesn't deal with at all. Like you kind of run off the edge of the world in terms of the map. There's terra incognita. It either denies or distorts. And so, you know, you you have this experience of having sort of lived inside this reality tunnel and then suddenly you're up against a place that the tunnel can't describe, that the map can't describe. So what happens, what do you think happens when a person reaches the edge of the map and kind of peers down into the abyss that lies beyond it? Yeah, this is such an interesting question. And it's very interesting how in our discussions, we're coming at the same questions from directions that are in some ways very similar, in other ways very different. We've had very productive dialogues about that. I'll step back a little bit and say I'm supposedly writing this gigantic book, which, if the outline were true, would be something like 3,000 printed pages. And 
it actually has only two sentences of content or one and a half sentences of content, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is that you can't separate pattern and nebulosity. And when you try, you run into trouble. And so I say that over and over again for 3,000 pages. Okay, that's really interesting. And yet, obviously, these are sort of code words. Yeah. Like, so can you unpack that for us? Well, for listeners familiar with Buddhism, nebulosity and pattern are essentially emptiness and form. Um, I'm not using those words because there's a lot of technical nitpicking about exactly what those words are supposed to mean. So I just invented new words. Pattern is the sense we have that the world is made of entities that are solid, separate, continuous, and defined. And you can kind of get by thinking that, but it isn't actually so. And the world actually is also nebulous, meaning that it's uh, fluid and things shade into each other and they come and go and it's not actually feasible to define things perfectly. So the world shows up in both of these ways in variegated mixtures. And the normal tendency is to want to make things fit into some pattern, because if you have a pattern that works, then you can manipulate things and have reliable results. Rationality, for example, is a set of ways of thinking that depend on that idea and that are, in many circumstances, extremely effective. At a certain point, you get to places where that runs out, your patterns fail you, you're confronted with nebulosity, and then what do you do? And there's 3,000 pages worth of different things <laughs> you can do that don't work. <laughs> then there are things that do work. So it was very interesting what you said about people coming to this view when they have really mastered a system and then you come to the edge, you no longer can have the illusion that this system could somehow be made to work because you have mastered it. There's a really interesting example of this, which is a story told by Evelyn Fox Keller, who is a historian of science. And it's about a scientist named Barbara McClintock, and she reached the edge of the map. Uh, she was working on the genetics of corn... Indian corn, which is, you know, the kind of corn that has kernels in different colors. Yeah, it's like a black and orange and red and cream. Exactly. And so she was somehow came up with the, the question of, you know, how does this patterns of colors arise? And she was a PhD trained geneticist and she knew how genetics was supposed to work and it didn't work because, you know, the patterns of inheritance in corn just wasn't fitting the map. So she published these papers saying, well, corn doesn't work that way, and everybody ignored this because this was at a time when genetics was extremely well understood. We had the chemical structure of DNA, and we knew exactly how genes worked and how the recombination of things and what all that works. And, you know, she said, well, corn isn't like that. There's a feminist angle on this, which is she was a woman scientist, and everybody said, well, you know, yeah, she has hormones, so, you know, she's seeing things. She can't possibly actually understand genetics. Yeah, you know, she's, she's screwing up here somehow. But it, it turns out that, indeed, this doesn't fit 
the standard story, and she discovered what are now called transposons, which are genes that move around inside the genome under their own power. And that turned out to be enormously consequential and practical later once it was understood. But I think one of the key things is the book about her that Evelyn Fox Keller wrote is called A Feeling for the Organism, and she had the actual ear of corn in front of her, and she could see the pattern of colored kernels, and that direct encounter with reality beyond the map is what kept her going into this discovery. So interesting. It reminds me of the problem of epicycles in early astronomy. Yes. Uh, where as long as you're using geocentric orbital mechanics, you have to keep adding in essentially fudge factors into your map that account for every stray movement of the planets. And by the, when was it, 14 or 1500s, they had so many fudge factors that it was this tangled mass of exceptions and special rules and this season or that season, this has to happen. They clearly run off the edge of the map of where you could get with geocentric calculations. And of course, suddenly they were able to discover a new map, a completely different map that got rid of all the epicycles, right? So sometimes running off the edge of the map helps you to break through to something new, this paradigm shift. So it's funny that you brought up this example because I'm using it in the thing that I'm writing at the moment exactly for the shift from rationality to meta-rationality as being exactly that kind of a shift where at some point you've got so many epicycles that you have to have some different way of seeing. And one of the things that's interesting about that historically is that the new paradigm didn't explain all the things that the old paradigm did. It explained much better some of the things that the old paradigm had explained, and it explained some new things, and then there are some things that are left behind, and some of them are left behind because they actually weren't things at all. So, for example, there were angels whose job it was to turn the spheres, and those kind of dropped out in the new paradigm. They weren't things. They were out of a job. Yeah. (laughs) And then there's things that translate into the new paradigm, but where they had been absolutes, they now become nebulous. So the concept of planet is one that was extremely well-defined, and now is no longer well-defined. So it's actually this annoying, arbitrary definition that was forced on Pluto recently. But basically, planets aren't a thing. It's not that planets don't exist, but, you know, there's marginal cases. And one of the things that happens in one of these reformulations is that you get to see that some things you had taken as absolute categories are actually heuristic or nebulous categories. And also when they redefined orbital mechanics in the heliocentric way and Newtonian physics, there was some stuff that still couldn't be explained, like the orbit of Mercury. It still didn't quite work. And so we eventually find all the edge cases, find all the problems with that map, and you need Einstein to figure those out. So it's not the case that each new map suddenly solves all the problems, because you can never have a map that defines all of reality. 
that uh, realization about relativity was cataclysmic conceptually at the time. It actually kind of ended modernity, although modernity limped along for another half century. Something that's not remembered now very well is how incredibly shocking it was that Euclidean geometry and Newtonian mechanics had turned out to be not quite right. For people in the 1920s, this was just appalling. And then, you know, that got fixed by Einstein, and then we had quantum, and that's got all kinds of its own weirdness. But people said, well, you know, now we've got the right story. But, you know, my reading is that in the past half century, the anomalies in physics have continued to pile up, and we don't seem to have the story at this point. The current case is that there is no map that anyone can prove. Yeah, I mean, an interesting question is, what if there is no theory of quantum gravity? Is that even conceivable? Can we contemplate that possibility? There's a very interesting work that's influenced my thinking a lot by a guy called Donald Schoen, who was a professor of architecture at MIT, and he was interested in design creativity and how it is that people come up with new designs for buildings. Um, and he started to see patterns in that. And then he broadened the scope of his investigation to all the professions. And he found that people who have mastered any kind of systematic profession like law or business management, finance, whatever it is, you get to a point where you've mastered the system, you've seen it working, and you've also seen the cases where it breaks down. And then that is where things get interesting, and that's the meta-to-systems, meta-rationality occurs at that point. Yeah, you can no longer imagine that somehow there's a part of the system you just haven't learned yet that covers that, right? You notice with perfect clarity that there are areas of reality it just doesn't deal with, either at all or in a way that is useful. And so how have you seen people deal with that? Well, the simplest patterns are, uh, the first one is you can panic and, <laughs> and insist that the system must work, and you try to hit things with a bigger hammer, you apply the system even more rigidly, and then that fails. And then you say, well, so this system was defective, but there must be some other system that's the right system, so I'm going to find the right system, either I'm going to do some research and find some other system that's known that will address this, and people go off on sequentially going through different systems in some cases. Or you say, well, I'm going to invent a new system and become some kind of a prophet, and that usually doesn't work very well. And at that point, you may actually come to grips with the fact that you can't make systems work. And then you may say, oh, and everything collapses we can't know anything, uh, we don't actually know anything, everything's actually completely meaningless, this is awful, I'm just going to crawl into a hole and hope I die. Um, that's nihilism. <laughs> that's not a great idea. People do get stuck there. The way forward is to somehow engage with reality without trying to force it to fit any conceptual framework. 
And that doesn't mean abandoning conceptual frameworks or that conceptual frameworks are bad. It means that you need to hold the conceptual framework at arm's length and hold reality at arm's length and say, how are these relating to each other? And be open to reality through some practice, something that actually forces you to engage without the system. Do you think it's possible to engage without a system? Yes. I think the systems are always going to be there. We can't abandon them, set them aside entirely, but we can allow them to become transparent and fuzzier and out of focus around the edges. And when you allow that, you can see around the edges and through the transparency. So you're, in a way, emphasizing the nebulosity of the system, would you say? Yes. So reality is nebulous and the system's nebulous, but both are also patterned and the system works to the extent that these patterns can dance with each other. It's really fascinating the way you're describing this. I came to this through the work of Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson long, long ago. They talked about something similar to this quite a bit. They would have called someone's map of the world their reality tunnel. I used that term at the beginning just to introduce that, but they were all excited about this understanding of reality tunnels. And they emphasized having this kind of nebulous, looser relationship to your own reality tunnel. But they also emphasized being able to just kind of switch reality tunnels very easily and quickly depending on the situation you're encountering in life. If it's an aircraft engineer to design a you know better aerofoil, time to wear the science worldview. And if later in the same day you're I don't know, smoking a joint in a hot tub with your date, it's time to engage some kind of uh, Epicurean worldview. And these could be completely different and not have to match up in any way. So I'm curious if that's something you've investigated, this sort of like switching of worldviews or reality tunnels, almost like changing clothing. Yes. Robert Anton Wilson was a huge influence on me and my early 20s. Me too. <laughs> I find him an irritatingly sloppy thinker, but he has huge insights. I'm not sure anybody else has articulated in the ways that he has. Absolutely different conceptual systems for different circumstances. Even within the realms of rationality, one of the things that you know I'm writing partly for a a STEM-educated audience, and so I... STEM meaning science, technology, engineering, and math, so a geek audience? Yes. I'm proud to be a geek, and I think many of the people who read my writing for various backgrounds people bring, but many do bring that background. Even within that realm, there are many different formal systems which you might bring to bear on a technical problem and the ability to, I hate the word intuition because it doesn't really mean anything, but there's some kind of not codified process that you have to engage in to figure out if you've got a problem that's not extremely well-defined yet. There's no method for getting some piece of reality to the point where you can apply a formal system. 
That's an aspect of meta-rationality. And then there's choosing what kind of formal system you are going to apply once you've gotten the shape of the thing, and there are many, many rational systems. Now, when I describe meta-rationality or post-postmodernism, as we might call it to people, often they shoot from the hip and just say, this is just a larger rationality. And what is your response to that? Well, words are nebulous. The word rationality is itself nebulous. There's several different senses, and they kind of flow into each other. You know, the simplest sense is just thinking and acting in ways that are likely to work, and that's unobjectionable. But usually it means some kind of codified formal system that you can write out and put in a book. And the domains we're interested in here are ones where there isn't a codified formal system in a book. I always uh, take that critique as, A, being just verbally glib and not serious, really, but also kind of missing the point, which is that it's even important to have a loose relationship with meta-rationality you know, and not take that as somehow being the ultimate truth either. Right. This is a nebulous concept itself. There's some pattern there and a lot of nebulosity. It's very difficult to talk about because it is sort of flowy. Um, traditionally, in the Buddhist world, these people wind up writing poetry. And in fact, there's a lot of that in the Western world too. I'm not going to write any poetry. I promise never to write any poetry about this. <laughs> <laughs> but you are writing novels about it. Well, I've abandoned the novel, but I hope to get back to it someday. Uh, what's the novel you're writing about uh, meta-rationality? I certainly wasn't thinking of it as being about meta-rationality when I started, but it probably is by mistake. It certainly is about the relationship between nebulosity and pattern. It's a vampire romance novel, which I planned to be a serial. I was going to put an episode out every two weeks, and it got to be more and more difficult, so eventually I set it aside for lack of time. But it is a historical novel set in the age of the dawn of Tantra in India, and it covertly is teaching fundamental principles of this view. Fascinating. I can't wait to uh, read it if it's ever finished. And it reminds me, isn't it also the case that you are in fact the protagonist in Ken Wilber's novel? Well, I like to think so. I don't know whether that's actually true, but he wrote a philosophical novel called Boomeritis, in which the protagonist was a graduate student working in artificial intelligence at MIT who discovers Heidegger and postmodernism and meta-rationality and realizes that AI is all wrong and sets out to redo AI on, on meta-rational lines. And that actually describes my 20s, so it might be about me. It specifically describes your 20s, correct? Yeah, well, I and my collaborator, Phil Agri, are the only two people who that could be about. Maybe it's about Phil. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> there's nobody else that that could be. There's so much I want to ask about that. But before we go in that direction, you know, this is a podcast mainly for meditators and people into... Well, in the tagline, it's mindfulness, meditation, and awakening. The big question on my mind is, what does all this have to do with meditation or awakening or Buddhism? How does meta-rationality fit at all in that world? Right. 
For me, the whole work comes out of both my experience of meditation and the Buddhist theory of how meditation is supposed to work, particularly the Dzogchen account, which um, has a particular spin on that. In meditation, meditation is a lot of different things, but a common form of meditation is that you sit there and at some point a thought happens and you leave the thought alone and there's some space and then a thought happens and you don't engage with the thought and the thought goes away and uh, you know initially the thoughts are very dense and you don't notice the fact that they are within some space and you can't stop yourself from chasing after the thoughts or pushing the thoughts in a certain direction but gradually you find that you don't need to be involved with them and then you can see the thoughts from the outside as occurring within some vast expanse of emptiness and the patterns of thought begin to become clear not in terms of the content but the dynamics of how they arise and pass and so you're seeing concept in the context of emptiness and you're seeing how it works and this is the same attitude that in meta-rationality you take to concept that you're looking at the context within which rationality or systems occur and if you do the practice with your eyes open then you also have the world and the world is happening at the same time your thinking is happening and you start to see how the world and the thinking are bouncing off of each other and seeing that relationship between thought and reality and how it operates is again the essential feature of the meta-rational practice. Yeah, what you're describing is so interesting. I particularly relate to this almost like a phase shift that occurs. We can think of it as a phase shift, metaphorically, of course, from like a solid and sharp and well-defined to a liquid or even a gas where one's experience of thinking changes from being about the concepts to noticing and being involved with just the activity of thinking. You know, these sort of bursts of activity that then fade away over and over again and the content itself is almost irrelevant but a fluid motion or activity of the thinking becomes prominent and at that point it's very hard to hang on to any system at all right because you're not uh, engaging in the conceptual level of the thought it's just a um, pure activity of the mind is that something that this is pointing to yeah exactly that yeah. So it's interesting. I tend to teach a lot in the Vipassana metaphor. 
and in many of the Theravada traditions, there's this sense that, you know, there's a very clearly defined thing called liberation, and uh, there's four stages of it, and you know it's happening when your um, sense of self becomes very, let's say, nebulous. And uh, something that I find so interesting in all of that is they don't really talk about meta-rationality at all, at least not that I've seen very much. And the definition of awakening doesn't seem to include this kind of fundamental agnosticism towards belief systems. And yet, to me, it's crucial. Maybe this is coming from, you know, Timothy Leary or Robert Anton Wilson, I don't know. But to me, if I notice someone is really good at not hanging on to belief systems, but switching back and forth, almost like being playful and bright with that energy of systems, that to me is a real signpost. Like, okay, there's some deep awakening happening there. Yeah, I mentioned... Dzogchen as a specific influence, and um, I think it it does quite explicitly include this. We talked about the metaphor of coming to the edge of the map, and Dzogchen is sort of defined as what happens when you come to the end of the Buddhist map and that runs out. So typically it is taught as something you do after you've completed the path of Tantra, and the path of Tantra is a you know very specific series of stages, and you do this, and you do this, and da, 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 da. And then there's no stages to Dzogchen. There's no method. It is a direct confrontation with the inseparability of form and emptiness. And in the basic texts of Dzogchen, the, particularly the Kunje Gyalpa, which is the first major scripture, it talks about systems as partial maps of reality. It goes through nine yanas, but I think it includes two extra yanas. It's something like uh, ten different systems that you can use for looking at reality, and they all have their own maps, and they're all partially true, and none of them is an absolute truth. Now, something I find to be true in um, Advaita, certainly, and I think it's there in Buddhist Tantra, and I think Dzogchen as well, is a very strong emphasis on view, right? A really strong emphasis on the way you think about this. And in fact, a lot of the practices are simply practices of view. You get used to looking at things in a certain way. Now, how is that different than just being like bought into a belief system and just sort of like indoctrinating yourself? Well, it it can be the same. It depends on what the view is and how you relate to it. If the view is some kind of um, cosmological, metaphysical story, then it can be exactly that. If the view is more a vague attitude or the advice to look for things that kind of look like this and see what happens, view and practice actually turn out to shade into each other. They're not actually separate. So the view is itself, you know, you can say, in any situation, look for aspects of pattern and nebulosity. There isn't any truth to that. The actual claim is that pattern and nebulosity are the same thing. They're not separate. But you can look for those as if they were separate in any situation, and then maybe something interesting will happen. So it doesn't have to be a indoctrination of a conceptual system as such. It's more of a literal view where you're learning to see the world in a certain way because that's interesting. 
Yeah, see everything as perfect. See every person as enlightened. This isn't true, but it's a practice of view that has interesting and beneficial results. Yes. So now just to swing back a little bit to Western philosophy, I've heard you describing meta-rationality as what happens when you look for a path beyond the problems inherent in postmodernism. Yes. Yeah. Since that's kind of a dense sentence with a lot going on in it, I was just curious if you could help us understand what that means. Right. Modernism in this sense, there's multiple senses to every word, but in this sense, modernism is the idea that some kind of conceptual system is going to explain everything. And around 1980, that finally died. It's no longer credible. So at this point, what do you do about the fact that nobody can actually believe in a system? You can kind of LARP it. You can pretend that you believe in a system. LARP is live-action role-play, so it's (laughs) make-believe. And fundamentalism is sort of a huge LARP. It's people pretending to be Christians or pretending to be Muslims, but you can't actually believe it. So you can go that route, or you can go into nihilism and say, uh, well, geez, nothing actually means anything. Everything is hopelessly confusing. You know, there's no purpose in life, but, uh, you know, I still have to go to my job, so this sucks, but that's not actually great. I think we've sort of, at this point, got roughly half of people in the developed world LARPing some kind of belief system, and the other half are in some stages of nihilism. So this is a theme that informs almost all of your work, this uh, lumping of most of our culture into either believers in some kind of eternalism or uh, believers in nihilism. Yeah, these are two key terms, and I I take those from from Buddhist philosophy. So postmodernity is defined as the era in which it's no longer possible to seriously believe in systems. And postmodernism was a response to that, which is a primarily nihilistic response. So the question now is, that obviously wasn't a great idea. What do we do? And I think the answer is to appreciate the meanings that we find in reality, which are everywhere. So nihilism is wrong and not try to solidify, concretize, fixate them into some kind of a belief system, because eternalism is also wrong. And really, all I have to say is don't do those two things. They don't work. (laughs) And does this leave you in some kind of meta-nihilistic state? Well, you're meta-to-nihilism in as much as you can see that that is a possibility, that there's a certain kind of validity to nihilism in that it understands that meanings aren't absolutes. That's an accurate recognition. And then it makes the mistake of saying, well, meaning there's no absolute meaning, there's no ultimate purpose in life, therefore there is no meaning at all. And that just doesn't follow. So what comes next? It doesn't follow, but what does follow? Well, what follows is appreciating a pattern and being creative and finding ways of bringing out the enjoyable characteristics of the world and uh, you know being useful and helpful to other people. And this isn't ultimately right, but 
it's uh, available as a way of being. I think it's so interesting that you may be this protagonist character in a novel by Ken Wilber. And of course, uh, Wilber himself has written quite a bit about this very topic, particularly using spiral dynamics as a way of talking about it. Is that something you're uh, pretty familiar with? or Mostly I've only read that one book, but I think that kind of is his major statement on spiral dynamics. And there's a lot of similarity between spiral dynamics and Robert Keegan's work, which has very profoundly influenced me. Yeah, in fact, meta-rationality, some people even call it Keeganism. And just for completeness, I'll say we're referring to Robert Keegan, who's an American psychologist that uh, developed a system of developmental psychology. And that system talks about how minds grow and people learn to understand things in new ways, both over the course of their own lifetime, but also perhaps societies. So can you talk us through some of the more interesting aspects of Keegan's work as it relates to this? Yeah. He describes three stages of adult development And there's empirical work that supports this. It's not quite as solid as I would like, so I think it's best taken as a kind of a heuristic framework rather than some kind of truth, although I I think it it does explain a great deal. You could call them pre-systematic, systematic, and metasystematic. Those aren't the terms he uses. What are the terms he uses? He never came up with words he really liked, so each of his books uses a different set, and I can't remember what they are. (laughs) Well, he uses different words in different books. Stages three, four, and five is one way of putting it, because there's stages zero, one, and two, which are mostly in childhood development. He's drawing on the work of a number of earlier psychologists, particularly Jean Piaget, who looked mainly at childhood development, There's a concept in Piaget of what he called concrete operations and then formal operations, which correspond to stages three and four. Concrete operations are mental abilities that are developed before you're able to deploy full rationality, and the formal operations are full rationality or systematic thinking. And then various people in his tradition have different stories about what post-formal operations might be, and that's what I call meta-rationality. The psychological literature on that is fairly disappointing, I have to say, so I've drawn other sources. Keegan is very good on the parallel emotional and relational development through those three stages, which he lines up with cognitive development in in ways that are extremely interesting. One of the aspects of his theory, which is very appealing to a kind of scientific rationalist kind of mind, is that each stage has the same relationship to the previous stage, which is that the things that had structured the self become mental objects to be manipulated at the next level. As Wilbur puts it, the um, subject of the first stage becomes the object of the subject of the second stage. 
Right. There's a very interesting podcast dialogue between Wilbur and Keegan. Don't remember where it is exactly. Their views are in many ways similar. So at the level three, a stage three, your self is structured by relationships and emotions. At level four, those are objects, and yourself is structured in terms of principles and procedures, and that's the rationalist way of being. And at stage five, those principles and procedures become objects that you stand outside of and you look at from the perspective of meaning-making, he says. Instead of inhabiting a belief system or being a belief, a reality tunnel, you can stand outside the belief system and see it as a system. And that's where we start talking about using or the system that's appropriate for the moment. And appropriate being however you want to define it. It's just another tool you're using, not an identity that you're being. Super fascinating. Now, I've heard you say on Buddhist Geeks that you feel like most American Buddhist sanghas are at this stage three. I'm afraid so. So whether it's a Buddhist sangha or any group, what does that look like if it's mainly at stage three? Well, at stage three, the organizing principle is relational, and it is about how do people feel about each other, and it's about a group is about creating harmonious, good feelings for people within the group. And so the idea of a sangha is that this is a, you know, sort of a psychological support group where we all come together and share our feelings and support each other and make sympathetic noises. <laughs> Nothing wrong with sympathetic noises. No, sure, absolutely. At each stage, I think Ken Wilber says, include and transcend. Um, the previous it's, it's flipped around, transcend and include. So each stage transcends but includes the previous one. You're not letting go of any of this material. When you transition to stage four, you still have emotions and relationships. They're still important, but you're relating to them as object level rather than as subject. And so in a sangha, this looks like everyone believing the same thing, and we are supporting each other, we're a solid group, but at the same time, there's very low tolerance for difference. Right. And there's no principles, actually. There may be lip service to principles, but there's no hard line of, actually, this is what we're doing now. Because people's feelings always take priority over any kind of abstract concept of that sort. Yeah, it's uh, non-compassionate to hurt people's feelings, so... We're not going to ever do anything that might upset someone. Exactly. Right. What happens when a person starts to see this level three as an object and starts moving towards level four in the realm of their Buddhist practice? Typically at that point, you start to recognize that your stage three-ish sangha is a bit infantile and you say, right, I am going to look for something that's harder core. And typically people have the idea that something more traditional will let them go deeper. And that's not altogether wrong. 
So then you look for a sangha where there is a, a well-defined curriculum and there's some emphasis on discipline and on the details flowing from some kind of overall concept. So this is the getting into the system level. Yeah. Yeah. And at a certain point, as we started out our discussion, you're engaging the system, you're very serious, you're going through the stages, and at some point you run into the edge of the map. Yeah. You run out of system. So what happens then? Well, I sort of went through the kind of list of typical responses. One is to try really hard to conform to the system and make it work. And when that fails, you say, oh, I I guess I got the wrong brand of Buddhism, and all these brands of Buddhism are arguing with each other, so I'll try a different brand. And then you try a different brand, and you take that very seriously for a few years, and then that path runs out too. And then maybe you go up and go home which would be the nihilistic response. We don't, I think, currently have any stage five Buddhism. We don't have any path or support for people who have gone beyond where systems can go. And yet there seem to be quite a number of those people out there. Yeah, that may be. (laughs) uh, People who have been practicing for 30 years or, you know, 20 solid years who have worked with a couple major systems or made real progress. These are interesting folks to talk to, right? You can, in many cases, kind of almost smell the nihilism. There's a little bit of a defeat or a sense of, well, it all doesn't mean anything anyway in the background with that. And to me, that always feels a little bit, um, well, in one way, it's advanced, right? You get that they've gone deeper And yet it's also not advanced enough, right? There's a slight bit of, you know, you could go just a little bit past that, right? Just a tiny bit further. And that's what I think that you're talking about with meaningness. I'm trying, yeah. In Keegan's framework, there's what's called stage 4.5, which tends to be nihilistic. That's where you've realized that systems have these limitations, but you just reject them altogether. And there's frustratingly little written in any literature about how do you make it from 4.5 to 5. And, you know, I haven't got a recipe. I can sort of, you know, wave my hands around some. But it's a matter of appreciation for systems as an aspect of reality that are, relatively speaking, functional. And... You give up on the system, and at the same time, you keep meditating because it's fresh and it's alive. Meditation can seem deadly at times, of course. There's ups and downs. But as long as you maintain contact with the world, that's the key thing, I think, that you're somehow still engaged, then that pulls you forward. Yeah, it's other people, right? Or other beings, animals, mm-hmm. people, whatever, that makes such a huge difference. Yeah. That um, inner subjective component is something that just isn't emphasized, and yet it seems to be so crucial. It may be why, um, I know at least in traditional tantrism, women are said to be inherently better at the realization And it's perhaps because of the more gendered emphasis on intersubjectivity and interconnection with other people and so on, where 
that pulls you out of this ditch. Right. And it's funny because um, when we talk about the stages and in my opinion, anyway, most American sanghas are stage three, you know, we're all just going to agree with each other about everything and everyone's going to feel good. And maybe a few that are stage four, like serious systemic practitioners of a staged system. But as you move forward on that path, or as one moves forward on, on the Keegan type developmental path, it's more isolating. One, because there's fewer people at that level, but also it's not emphasizing the inner subjective or even just relational component. Vince Horn and I were recently talking about that. The relational component seems like one of the major things of the future of uh, Western um, spirituality. We have to somehow learn to re-engage with each other. Yes. Ideally, that's what Sangha should be. I think just the combination of there being relatively few people and there being so little written or talked about at this stage or level of development makes it difficult. Reluctantly, I guess, I'm sort of realizing over the past year that this may be something that I'm going to be trying to create in some way. I've been running away from teaching for my entire life, uh, <laughs> Probably a wise move. Yeah. But at a certain stage, that may be what one has to do. And so I reluctantly feel like maybe this is what I have to do now. So what are some future echoes of this sort of teaching that you want to manifest? It's extremely nebulous at this point, but I live within driving distance of the Bay Area, where there's obviously a great many people who have a techie background. I have a techie background, and some of them are interested in these kinds of themes, and so I'm hoping to facilitate that in some way via seminars, workshops, talks, um, gatherings. I don't know how all that will work out yet. Yeah, that's really fascinating. We've been discussing meta-rationality mainly in the context of meditation and Buddhism, and yet it doesn't require meditation at all. Right. There's a lot of ways to um, engage in learning meta-rational skills that don't involve meditation. What are some of the things you're looking at there? I wrote a blog post called A First Lesson in Meta-Rationality, which uses uh, an old AI problem, artificial intelligence problem, which is a series of puzzles which are inside out from the usual kind of puzzle. The usual kind of puzzle is you've got some fixed set of rules and a concrete example, and you have to apply the rules to the concrete example. And that's the format of systematic rationality. Uh, these problems, which are called Bungard problems are inside out in as much as you're given a concrete example and the problem is to figure out what the rule is. And that's a meta-rational operation of going from something concrete to discover a system that's going to apply to that concrete situation. So I think there's potentially other examples of this sort. So these Bongard problems are basically nonlinear puzzles or irrational puzzles? How would you describe them? I wouldn't say they're irrational. They're very um, comfortable for people who have a kind of a logical mind. They, they're sort of seductive 
because they trick you into doing something that you actually can do but you thought you couldn't. They do seem to have, again, I hate this word intuition because it's so unclear what it means, but these puzzles provoke a moment of aha where you somehow all the pieces fall into place and then you see what it is and in retrospect it's obvious but until you you got it you're staring at it and think what on earth is going on here yeah it's interesting that you are adverse to the word intuition the realm that we're describing for me because it's what you describe as nebulous what we might describe as empty to me it's naturally related with ideas like nonlinear or non-logical or non-rational or things that in the old and inaccurate way of talking we would have called left-brained or be described as coming from the dreaming mind or the unconscious or, you know, simply creative thinking. And if we look at the work of, for example, Graham Wallace and people who have talked quite a bit about creative thinking, the whole idea is to allow the nebulosity of mind to have time to sort of generate one of these aha moments. And it's that letting go of the linear production of an aha moment and just sort of allowing it to arrive out of the nebulosity that I think is the definition of intuition, right? At least the way I understand it. Yes. My problem with that particular word and some of the other things that you said is that by putting a label on all of that and saying this is a category, it tends to then make it opaque so that nothing more can be said. You say intuition, then the discussion ends. If you can get specific about what's going on there, you know, here are some practices Towards the end, you you started to talk in that framework of here are some practices you can do that will encourage it creativity, and and here's how the intuition arises, or you know here are some patterns in that. Then that becomes interesting. I see. So you're objecting to the magical quality of the word intuition, where it's like an X factor, and then a miracle happens. Right. Yeah. Okay. I am fascinated in my experience that you can take these very super technical Vipassana techniques that are utterly clearly defined and very precise and difficult to do and reliably generate intuition doing them, right? It's in one way of looking at it very formulaic and yet it's letting go entirely of the normal way of arriving at a conclusion. I haven't done those practices at all. I know from a different tradition, that sounds very interesting. Yeah, it's something that, for example, Shenzhen Yang teaches quite a bit. It's related to, some of these anyway, are related to the idea in the Vishuddhimagga, you know, a, a classic text of Vipassana practices, where it's described how any sensory experience arises and then changes and then passes, arises and changes and passes. And if you begin to both deconstruct thinking into its components, which in one way of doing it would be the visual component and then the verbal component, but there are other ways to do it. But let's, for the sake of the discussion, say you're looking at the visual component and you're listening to the verbal component and you're tracking the arising and changing and passing of each of these individually, 
that does the thing I was describing earlier of almost like shattering the conceptual level of it and really focusing attention very strongly on the activity or experience of the sights and sounds of the thought. And the more you do that, the thinking process starts to become just this activity that is almost like spontaneously unfolding and just keeps unfolding and keeps unfolding. And one of the reliable effects of that, at least uh, in the reports of many, many people, is that it kind of supercharges uh, creativity and intuition. To talk about it in in the words of another tradition, you are deeply trusting your mind, right? There's nothing that you're suppressing or denying. You're just allowing that thought activity to arise in a way that feels really light and really spontaneous. It's interesting because it's a very nitpicky technical way of deconstructing the thinking process, and yet it leads to this really fun, flowing, energetic, alive kind of relationship with your mind. That sounds great. I have done practices that sound like they're similar in outcome, but are less nitpickily technical, and I think that nitpicky technical approach might be particularly accessible for some people. Perhaps it probably would have been for me, actually, being a nitpicky technical person. Yeah, like most of Shinzen's practices, it's great for STEM people. So what's our future here in the West with the practices we're doing? What are we missing? And where do you see an opportunity? I think there's a general dialogue going on among thinking people about this, the Buddhist blogosphere and podcastosphere. And enlightened Twitter. Enlightened Twitter. (laughs) Where do we go from here? I think a lot of us have the sense that in some sense, Buddhism in the West has run its course, at least on the lines that it has been going. That's over. And yet there's still so much possible. And how do we encourage that to manifest And I think nobody's got a very great concrete idea yet. You know, my interest is particularly in addressing a geeky kind of audience, because I'm a geeky kind of person. So I'm presenting some key Buddhist ideas covertly in in geeky kind of language. Uh, I'm open about the fact that I'm being covert. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And... I think that may head in certain directions, but can't know the future. One thing that's interesting to me is that so many of the ideas we're talking about, when they're expressed in a Buddhist context or even a non-dual Hindu context, they're strongly associated with gurus or lamas, right? These traditions tend to have this strong teacher role. And when you practice in those contexts, Almost always, it's very important to have this guru figure who is helping you along the path. And yet, obviously, American and perhaps all of Western culture since the 70s has had a really fraught and difficult relationship with lamas and gurus. It seems even in 2017, we're having hardly a day go by without, you know, some guru or lama uh, caught with his hand in the cookie jar or on some student's behind or whatever. 
So I'm curious, in your eyes, are these practices irreconcilably intertwined with the idea of the guru or the lama, or how does that work for you? Yeah, this is very tough. I wrote a lot of a series on reinventing Buddhist Tantra, and I abandoned that essentially due to this question that I don't know how to resolve. It's hugely misunderstood, but once the understanding is clarified, it's not clear what way there is forward. The closest analogy that I know of in the Western world is the role of a PhD thesis advisor in a research university, which is actually pretty close. That's probably not widely understood in the West either. You know, if you want to learn serious science, that is the only way. There is no way that you can do that other than by apprenticing yourself to somebody who has mastered that and actually spending years on a daily basis working with them. And that person, you know, owns you. Yeah. Yeah. I have not been through that, but enough of my friends have that I'm aware of the sort of shocking level of servitude (laughs) and submission that is required. Yeah, and, you know, that they enormous power over the rest of your life uh, in terms of their ability to recommend you for positions and so on. The same problems arise there. So I, I guess the point of this analogy is that this is something that's not alien to the Western world. It is a consequence of learning something that is really difficult and difficult to communicate. And we just don't have a social context for that. So can advanced Buddhist material be taught in some other way or transmitted in some other way? I just don't know. Yeah, I wonder if we can develop a model that maintains the good parts and to whatever extent depotentiates the really the difficult parts so that it's just clear socially that if you know sex or money or power are strongly involved that the person has transgressed. So far, we're not doing so great on that. Yeah, I would say there's a problem of gurus behaving badly, but even when there isn't an overt problem, it requires enormous commitment on the part of both the teacher and the student. And this is basically a lousy deal for the teachers as well as for the students. It Being a Buddhist teacher doesn't pay well. It doesn't have uh, medical insurance along with it. And there's huge expectations and the psychological demands are very intense. There's very little support. There's not a good peer group. This is a problem for teachers as well as for students. Another problem as a meditation coach, right? I spend a lot of my time coaching meditation students one-on-one. Besides the things you mentioned, another one is just that it doesn't scale. You know, if you're really actually attempting to deeply guide someone into some of these uh, clearer understandings, it takes time and it's very individual. I love the fact that each person's mind is so unique and so fascinatingly different. Everyone is a snowflake. And uh, I just find it so amusing when I see people trying to teach some of these deeper concepts to large groups, because you just know that there's almost no possibility of it getting through. Yeah. And it's, a, it's another one of the issues. And in a way, that's the beautiful part, because it comes back to that relationship that we were describing. The relational element is so crucial. 
So from my end, it's not that we throw out this entire idea of the teacher, but that we, as a culture, can re-engineer it to be something much more productive and that avoids most of the pitfalls that, for some reason, in the last 40 years, we just keep running into and keep running into and keep running into. Eventually, they're so predictable that there must be a, a way to just make sure most of them don't happen. From my perspective, the number one thing is that the inner group of students, for most teachers, the, um, let's say, top students, are almost always complicit in hiding the teacher's shortcomings or, let's say, crimes. They're the ones covering up for them. And so having a strong commitment to not doing that is incredibly important especially if any part of your belief as a practitioner or any part of your feeling about the world for that matter is that you would like to have compassion for beings or help people not be harmed. It's uh, amazing to me the level to which the students are often willing to just cover up really actually heinous deeds. Yeah, it's bizarre that We've been having this going on for decades, and the pattern is always exactly the same, as you say. You know, this is something about group dynamics, I guess. Group dynamics, I think there's also an unacknowledged predisposition for people who have just been doing a lot of deep meditation to be highly suggestible. Right, that makes sense, yeah. Okay, so... Something that I'm noticing with this discussion, maybe we'll have a meta discussion about our discussion, but you know, here we are talking about meta rationality and there's a little bit of an arrogance in there and I'm certainly like sniffing down my nose at the troglodytes who are still non-meta rational. And what I've seen over the years is as soon as people hear about this idea, they want to make sure that they are meta rational. And so could you just talk a little bit about the dangers of self-diagnosis and also the understanding that maybe it's not A or B? Yeah, the stage theory is a conceptual system for looking at some aspects of reality that is like other conceptual systems. It's got some validity to it, but it's not absolute truth. I think putting people in boxes, including especially yourself, is to be avoided. That causes all kinds of trouble. My most recent blog post actually is sort of an apology, really, on behalf of, well, myself, but also meta-rationality in general for a kind of snooty, sneery attitude that we can fall into. If we're going to be helpful, we need to clear the path to meta-rationality and support people along the way rather than engaging in some kind of one-upmanship and uh, making the path unnecessarily difficult, which tends to be the case that people go out of their way to be obscure. And I said, I promise never to write any poetry. I think there are some things maybe that are best communicated that way, but it also can be a way of just making things more difficult to understand. Yeah, maybe more difficult than they have to be. I think the other thing is that nobody is meta-rational about all things at all times. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like one day you move from stage four to stage five and 100% of you is stage five 100% of the time. Yeah, well, and we all drop back into old ways of being, particularly under stress, and 
we don't see ourselves clearly at all times. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I find fascinating is that somehow these ideas of meta-rationality and even of meditation and awakening, at least in the Bay Area, end up inextricably intertwined with artificial intelligence. And listeners may not be aware that you, David, have a strong background in AI. Would you just uh, tell us about your background in that a little bit? Yeah, I started at the MIT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory in 1979. I eventually did a PhD there. In the mid-80s, after doing a master's thesis, which was full of mathematical proofs and was extremely rational, I suddenly discovered the meta-rational tradition, various aspects of that, ethnomethodology, um, the philosophy of Martin Heidegger, some of the psychological work like Keegan's, and that made me realize that the rational approach was not going to work. And with my collaborator, Phil Agri, we began a new research program that might be called Meta-Rational in some way, and decided it was too difficult, and we both went off to do other things after about 1990. So, in a way, your interest in philosophy actually comes from trying to solve AI problems, correct? And vice versa, yeah. I mean, I think from an early age, I was very interested in you know, what is it to be a self? What is it to be human? What does it mean to think? You know, I was meditating from an early age, and these questions were all tied together. And artificial intelligence, I saw as a way of getting at those questions, that if we can program thinking and selves, then we know we've really understood them. Clearly, if you can build an artificial brain, you understand something about brains. Yeah, especially in the approach that was being taken there where everything was being very explicit. You know, the machine learning approach is you might wind up building an intelligence that was incomprehensible. No one knows what's going on in the depths of your neural net. Yeah. Do you feel like AI is going to become something dangerous? I think this is one of these things that people have very strong opinions about on the basis of very little understanding. I don't have a strong opinion, despite, I think, having as much understanding as pretty nearly anyone. So I think because we don't know, being cautious about it and putting some resources into thinking about how can we decrease the risk, that's not crazy. I'm generally skeptical about AI in the short term, meaning, you know, the next 10, 20 years. Yeah, there's been some exciting progress in the past few years, but I don't think that's going to go very much further than it has so far. But I could be completely wrong. You're not laying awake at night in fear that the molecules of your body are going to be turned into uh, processors for calculating pi anytime soon? No, that one doesn't keep me awake at night. <laughs> Do you feel like we're currently learning anything really powerful about consciousness? No. Yeah, <laughs> me neither. What's your take? I mean, is this a meat-based process entirely? Uh, I think we just have no clue. I don't think the word is well-defined. I think there's just this mass of conceptual knots around the whole thing, and 
it's entertaining to think about for a while and then you realize you're not going to get anywhere and then it's best just to let it go. So what's the edge for you right now? What's fascinating and interesting? I think now the edge is in figuring out how to present the things that I think that I understand but have some difficulty in articulating in a way that is going to really help take people forward into this kind of a meta-rational view. And I've approached that from a lot of different points of view, and I keep sort of reformulating the way I talk about it, and some people get very excited, and that's very gratifying. And, you know, because it's gratifying and it seems to be helpful, I want to take that forward. Well, I'm very excited to see where that leads. So thanks for joining me for this session, David. Thank you, Michael. It's really been a lot of fun. Yeah, it has. Hopefully we can do it again soon. Cool. All right. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days, I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat. If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource, and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You, 
That's deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. Listening.